today. We are chugging along in the book of Ephesians. Today we have arrived at chapter 4. And if you're taking notes today, which I strongly encourage note taking, for me, if I don't take notes, like if I, when I go to the main, um, if I'm not taking notes, I tend to zone out. But if I take notes, uh, not only does it help keep me focused, but like, you know, a couple days from now, like if I went uh, and was taking notes from today's service, I could go back and look at my notes and be reminded of what we talked about. So I highly encourage note taking. And if I said that and you're like, you know what, I kind of do want to take notes and you didn't, you didn't go grab paper, you could just go do that right now. I won't even think twice if you get up and go get it. But nonetheless, you guys, Ephesians chapter four. So do you guys remember... Uh, the, the overall balance of the book of Ephesians, there are two words that Pastor Joel has kind of been reminding you of week by week. There are these two words that he says, the book of Ephesians, not only the book of Ephesians, but a lot of Paul's letters and a lot of, you know, the books of the Bible, there's this balance of these two things. I saw some hands. What do you guys think it is? Yes. Doctrine and duty. Yes, doctrine and duty are the two words that the book of Ephesians kind of is like almost split in half. The first half is doctrine. The second half is duty. And today we have arrived at that point in time where we're not necessarily going to be focusing so much on doctrine, although we are because the Bible gives us doctrine, excuse me. Uh, but the we are now moving to the point where we are talking about what we do. So doctrine, a good way to think about it, and this is, you know, this is a refresher, you've already heard this, but doctrine, what we looked at in chapters one through three, is what God has done. So chapters one through three, we've been looking at a bunch of things about what God has done regarding our salvation, our, you know, uh, our redemption, how he has sealed us by the Holy Spirit. So many things we've looked at in just those short three chapters. And now today marks that point where we now get to look into, okay, but how do we respond? How do we live in light of what we have learned in chapters one through three. You see, in chapters one through three, we've learned all about things like redemption, the redemption that we have through Christ. We've learned that our salvation is by grace through faith, that we were once far from God, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus, that Christ. Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone we looked at not that long ago. We looked at the mystery of Christ and the mystery of godliness. And then last week, we kind of dove into uh, how we are to, how God calls us to try to comprehend the fullness of his love for us. And now today is that point where it's as though Paul says, okay, now here's what you do about all of these things. Here's how you live in response to all of these things. See, today we are going to begin to look into what does practical Christianity look like? How do we live? How do, I, how do we live our lives as Christians? And we're going to see all about that in chapters 4 through 6. And I really, I got to hand it to you guys. We have been going through some very thick, rich Bible doctrine in chapters one through three. Like we have been going through some stuff that is like 
No joke. Like it's, some of it is hard to understand, but you guys have been doing really well. But now going forward, you should be thinking about, okay, now how can I apply this to my daily life? And I pray that today that you would have that same prayer and that you would walk out of this place asking the Lord, okay, Lord, how can I live this out? And so I want to, I want to, you know, take a moment to think about why do you guys think Paul starts with doctrine before he starts with duty? Do you think he does that by accident? I don't think he does it by accident. Why do you think he starts with doctrine and then moves to duty? You could just kind of think an answer to yourself. I won't call on anyone right now. But what I think is because when we truly meditate, when we truly think about and are amazed by all that God has done for us, aka what we looked at through chapters one through three, when we meditate on that and when we start to grasp that and understand it, do you think that it will affect the way that we live our lives? Yes or no? You have a 50-50 shot here. Yes or no? It will, right? If you start to really meditate on the gospel, what, what Christ Jesus did for you, then it will absolutely change everything about you. It will. It will change the way that you live. You see, it's when we appreciate the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel means the good news. And what is the good news? Well, before we get to the good news, we have to talk about the bad news. And the bad news is that you, me, he, she, we, we are all sinners. And God is perfect. God is holy. He is sinless. And yet we are sinners, and we have fallen short of the glory of God, is what the Bible says. And because of our sin, it's as though our sin is like a barrier that separates us from God. Imagine I were standing up here today, right, and I didn't have a microphone on, there were no speakers that you couldn't hear me through or anything, and there were, instead of a stage right here, imagine this was a wall, and it was completely enclosed, right, you and I are unable to have a close relationship at that point, right? Like if I lived on this side of the wall and you lived on that side of the wall, we can't have a relationship. And that wall that stood between us and God, you know what that wall was? It was our sin, right? And we had a broken relationship with God, but God sent his son. Jesus took upon flesh he was born of a virgin, and he lived a sinless life. He was perfect. He was God incarnate, and he lived a sinless life ultimately to die on the cross for all of our sins, not only the sins of those who were alive at that time, but our sins to this day. And he essentially removed that wall that I described to you. And now because of what Christ has done, Anyone who calls upon his name, anyone who believes in the work of what Jesus has done and accepts God into their heart, they can now have that relationship with God and there is no separation. That doesn't mean that we don't continue to sin. We do. We wrestle with sin. But our relationship with God has been restored through Christ. And anyone can have access to that. Anyone can come to know Christ. He offers the gift of salvation 
to all, but not everyone accepts it. Right, But when we understand, when we think about what Christ did for us, you know, I have uh, the, the image of a cross. I have one hanging from the mirror in my truck, just a, just a little cross necklace. Some of you wear cross necklaces. Some of, your, some of your houses are filled with crosses, and quite frankly, I love that. Because every time I see the cross, you know what it causes me in, internally to do? It causes me to thank the Lord. Because I see it and I'm reminded, man, you know who should have been on that cross? I should have been on that cross because I'm the sinner. Jesus was not. And when I see that cross, I just go, thank you, Lord, because you, you were perfect, Jesus, and you died in my place. You paid my debt. You see, when we meditate on the gospel, when we meditate on doctrine, there's, you can't stop it from changing you. It will change who you are. It will radically transform you and change your entire life. You guys ever seen those movies or TV shows where the, in one character will like save the life of another character, right? And then what is that one character who was saved? What do they do? What do they usually say to the one who saved them? They say something like what? They say, they'll say, thank you, obviously. But then they'll say something like, Michaela, what? What will they say? They'll say something like, I owe you my life. Or how can I ever repay you, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? You've seen shows or movies where they, this happens? This happens in real life, too. You know, people, their lives get saved, and the person who saved them is just like, how can I repay you? Right? And this is what it's like for us in Jesus. Jesus has saved us. He has saved our souls from going to hell and now we can go to heaven not because of what we have done but because of what he has done. And it's like we're that person that's been saved and saying, Jesus, how can, how can I repay you? And you're the, there is an answer to that question. The answer we see in Romans 12, 1. I want you guys to look to the screens. It'll be up there. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Everybody say reasonable service. You see, when we meditate on what Christ has done for us, when we meditate on God's love, you want to know what your reasonable service is or the only rational response? You want to know what that is? It's as though you do this. Lord, because of what you've done for me, here's my entire life. It's yours. I am your living sacrifice. Reasonable service. I had you guys repeat that out loud. Reasonable service, right? What that means is it's the only rational thing to do. And yet sometimes we live our lives in such a way, it's like, we, yeah, we're like, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for me, but this life, you know, this life that I have, it's my life. I could, I could do what I want. When in reality, the only proper response to have to the gospel is to be a living sacrifice, to give him your entire life, to give your life as worship unto him. And today we're gonna see Paul charge us. He's going to give us this 
command, this exhortation, if you will, to walk worthy. We'll start by looking at the call to walk worthy, and then we will look at the way we walk worthy. So if you guys will join me in standing for the reading of God's word, you guys know that we do this on Sundays and oftentimes on Wednesdays as well. And remember, we do not stand because uh, in standing the Bible is going to make more sense to us or we're going to be more spiritual. We stand in reverence. We stand in respect. It's the same concept of like, why do you bow your heads and close your eyes when you pray? Like, have you ever thought about that? Why am I bowing my head? Why am I closing my eyes? Is it because God only hears prayers of those who have their heads bowed and eyes closed? Absolutely not. But it is a sign of reverence. And so we are standing to show reverence and respect for God's eternal word. So Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6. Look down in your Bibles with me. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You guys may be seated, and as you are seated, let's pray together and ask God to teach us his word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, with how you are good to us, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, Lord, that you saw us, Lord, as, as though we were, we were drowning in our own sin. And we were unable to save ourselves. And so, Jesus, you stepped in. Lord, Lord, you pulled us out of our sin. Lord, you died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And Lord, we recognize that because of that very fact, Lord, our lives should be radically different. Lord, that we should live our lives as being eternally grateful Lord, we ask that today, that the, the truths in your word, in just these six verses in Ephesians 4 today, Lord, we recognize that you are speaking to us through these, Lord, and give us, we just ask that you would give us ears to hear today what the Spirit has to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you guys are taking notes today. Our first point that we're going to be looking into, we see in verse 1, is the call to walk worthy. The call to walk worthy. Remember, I told you the name of today's message is walking worthy. What we're looking at first is this call that Paul gives us in verse 1 when he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There is this call. Paul says, I beseech you. That word is on the screen. When's the last time you guys have used the word beseech in a sentence? 
You have probably lived your 11, 12, 13, maybe even 14 year life having never used the word beseech in a sentence unless you were reading this verse or Romans 12. Beseech is not a word that you and I use pretty much ever, but it is a very strong and important word. To beseech is to strongly exhort or strongly encourage. It's to urge you to do something. The idea is almost like it's to beg. And so Paul is practically saying like, I beg you Ephesians. Or remember, though we are looking at his letter to the Ephesians, this is for our learning as well. So it's as though Paul is standing up here today looking at you all and saying, I beg you to do this. I urge you to do this. You see, Paul loved that church, the church of Ephesus, so badly. He wanted them to walk in what God, all of what God had for them. And Paul, you know, and the God, ultimately, he, he loves you and he wants you to live your life in such a way. You see, when he says walk, he says, I beseech you to walk. Now, when he says walk, you want to know what he's not saying? He's not, he's not saying, I want you guys to walk. And you're like, okay, um, how far am I walking here? Quarter mile, mile, like, what are, like how, how far do I go? He's not talking about physical walking in that sense. You see, when the Bible says walk, oftentimes what it's referring to is it's referring to your day-to-day life, how you live. It's your daily conduct. And so he says, I urge you guys, I beg of you guys that you would live your life in such a way that is worthy. Everybody say worthy. Worthy, when he says to walk worthy, that word worthy, what it means is it's to honor something. It's to live according to something. It's to match up. I like the idea of this definition, to match up. It's all the same definition, just kind of three different areas of the definition, you could say. This idea of matching up. It's as though the gospel says that this is what Christ has done for you. This is how much God loves for you. And this is what God wants you to do about that. The Bible says that and then your life matches up with that. Your life doesn't look different than what God said. It looks like what he said. That you actually take the truths of his word and that you live them out in your life that you would obey his commandments. That's what it means to match up your life to the gospel, to be worthy of the calling with which you were called. But, you know, I just mentioned it, but what is this thing that we are to walk worthy of? He says, the calling with which you were called. It sounds kind of confusing. It's really not that confusing. You see, God has called you. How many of you would refer to yourself as a Christian today? Raise your hand. A lot of Christians in here. That's awesome. Maybe not every single one of you are. Maybe not everybody raised their hand. I pray that by the end of today that you would want Jesus, that you would want what he did for you on the cross. But if you are a Christian, then God has a call for you. Everyone point at yourself real quick. You pointing at yourself, you are recognizing that God has a call for you. He has a call for me and he has a call for you. What is that call? The calling with which you are called is to recognize that God has a higher, a greater, an elevated life that he wants you 
to live. It is above the ways of this world. See, you guys, do you guys know that the world wants you to live a certain way? And when we refer to the world, we're talking about the world apart from God, the sinful ways of this world. The world wants you to live like the world. You guys acknowledge that? Nod your head if you acknowledge that, right? The world wants you to live a certain way. And it's as though God says, I want you to live a better life than that. God has a greater calling for you. Everybody say greater calling. He has a greater calling for you. See, Paul in Philippians, uh, just a book over, he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's as though God says to each one of us today, hey, I want you to come up here and live this greater life that I have for you. I want you to live this elevated life that I have for you. God doesn't want you to live in the ways of this world. He doesn't want you to live for your flesh. He wants you to live for him. You see, you can write it down. It's on the screens. Uh, it's super simple, but it just, it just makes sense. You know, God's calling for my life. You guys know what those signs in the middle are? It's the greater than sign. And I put three to emphasize what I'm saying here. God's calling for your life is greater, greater, greater. And we could say a million graders and still not so you fully communicate what we're trying to communicate here, but his calling for each one of you is so much better. It is so far above the ways of this world. You know, the, I said the ways of this world, the world wants you to live according to its way, but God would say, I have something better for you. I have something better for you, he would say to us. In 1 John two fifteen through 17, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. I feel like the Lord made me to preach this right here. Because in my life, after high school, I went wayward. I was not seeking the Lord in my life. And I was living for the world. I was doing exactly what this verse said not to do. And I repented and I came back to the Lord and I rededicated my life to him. And I can tell you guys, can we go back to the equation looking thing that I had on there? I can tell you guys that what this says, that God's calling for your life, I can tell you because I lived it, that it's what he has for you is better. I feel like God made me to preach this. I'm always telling people that what the life you have in Christ is better than what the world offers. You see, God has a greater calling, you guys. It's, it, to illustrate it, it's like this. It's like if, if you have access, right? Imagine that 
I was the richest man in the world, which I am far from the richest man in the world, but imagine that I were the richest man in the world. And one of the things that I just wanted to donate to you is I wanted to donate to you the ability uh, to, for you to have just the best, the best chefs in the world, access to the best restaurants. You never have to pay for any of it. Whatever you want to eat, the best stuff in the entire world, the best that we could give you, I want you to just be able to have it whenever you want. You can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you could choose this restaurant, you could choose that restaurant, you could choose this steak, that steak. It's like I offer that to you, and you say, wow, that's pretty awesome. Um, but you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather go eat this dog food over here, right? This is, this is like the, the comparison God says, I have this, this greater life for you, this greater calling for you. The, the, the finest restaurants, and God's not necessarily going to give you all the finest restaurants in the world, but hopefully you're understanding what I'm illustrating here, that God has this amazing life for you. And sometimes what we do to God is we say, you know what, Lord, I see that you have all that for me. But I'd, what I'd rather do is I'd rather eat this dog food. I'd rather go for the ways of this world. And God says, I got something better. He wants you to live the better way. He wants you to walk worthy of that higher life that he has for you. I want you guys to write down these verses. There's going to be three on the screen. Just jot down the references. If you try and write down the whole verse, you'll get left in the dust. We're going to keep moving on. But Colossians 1.10, another verse that talks about walking worthy. It says in Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. First Thessalonians 2.12 says that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And then finally, Philippians 1.27, I think just says basically all of what I'm talking about just in a handful of words says it perfectly. Only let your conduct, what is conduct? The way that you, the way that you live, right? Everything about the way that you live. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. To let your life be worthy of the gospel. It is a call that God has for every single one of you. That you would walk worthy of that calling. I love the way that Alexander McLaren, he's a preacher uh, from the 1800s, Scottish guy. Um, and I, I just love the way he says what it means to walk worthy. He says that walking worthy is an obligation on all Christian people Remember, I asked you guys to raise your hand if you thought you were a Christian, right? There's an obligation on all Christian people to be worthy of their Christianity. It's so simple that if you say you're a Christian, that your life matches up to Christ, that your life matches up to his commandments, that you do what he says to do, and you don't do what he doesn't say to do right? 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says it very well. It says, now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, or you could, you know, paraphrase and say, he who says, I'm a Christian, right? He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments. Whose commandments? 
the Lord, Jesus, yes. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Verse 6. He who says he abides in him. Or again, we could paraphrase and say, He who says, I'm a Christian, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You guys ready to have your mind blown? Christians should live like Christ. Do you guys know what the word Do you guys know what the word Christian actually means? It means back in those days it meant little Christ. Like when the word was initially created, it meant little Jesus essentially, little Christ. Now, we would say it more like follower of Christ. Because if you are a Christian, then within you, there should be this desire to live like Jesus lived. That is how we walk worthy. That is the call that God has for you, to be like Jesus. Again, if you guys are taking notes, we will now move from the call to walk worthy to how we walk worthy. This is our second point today, or the way we walk worthy, you could say. And we see this in verses two through three. So Paul, he doesn't just say, hey, everybody, walk worthy. And like, he's like, that's it. That's all I have for you. He tells us, no, walk worthy. And here's how, here's some of the ways that you are going to walk worthy. He gives them direction. He lays out what they are to do. In verse 2, he says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word lowliness, we'll take a moment, look at that one, uh, and we'll look at all of these, but let's start with lowliness, because that's what Paul starts with. The word lowliness is, is essentially the same word as humility, to be humble. Right? What's the opposite of being humble? To be prideful, right? So to explain what it means to be lowly, to explain what it means to be humble, you know what it really means? Like the most simple definition of it is to have a small opinion of yourself. Right? What does pride look like in action? What pride look like, looks like in action is it says, I'm better than you. Right? Imagine that if, if I took the stage this morning and I walked up here and I got up here and I was like, hey, everybody, I just want you guys to, to know before we get started that I'm better than you. And you're like, what? This, is, this guy's crazy. He's so prideful. Right? Now I would not say that because I don't think that way. Right? But to be humble is, is, is essentially the opposite. If I were to come up here and I, and I were to say, hey, everyone, I just want you to know that like, I care about you guys so much that I actually see you guys as better than me. And I want to I wanna like live my life in such a way where I view you as greater than me. And I want to I wanna help you. I want to serve you. That's what it means to be humble. To be humble is to have a deep sense of moral littleness. It's to recognize that, spiritually speaking, we are bankrupt. And the one who is humble 
is the one that God says he will exalt. But the one who is prideful, he will cast them down. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. We're going to spend a moment looking into this verse and talking about this verse because it is good. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. There's that word lowliness again. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not only look out, or not only, excuse me, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You guys want to know how the world thinks? The world thinks that I'm going to look out for number one. And in the world's eyes, who is number one? In the world's eyes, it's not Jesus. In the world's eyes, it's me. If I were thinking like the world, then I would say, you know, forget all you guys. I only care about me and my needs and my interests. If we were to, if we were to you know, go out to a meal together and, you know, you didn't have money and, and I bought myself a meal and I didn't share any of it with you because I'm like, sorry, you don't have money. I'm hungry, Right? I am looking out for my own interests. And the Bible says, don't only look out for your interests, look out for the interests of others. See others as actually better than you. You see, guys, there's like uh, roughly 150 of you or so in this room probably. If everyone were to have shown up today with this very mindset, to not let anything be done through selfishness or pride, but rather... If you were to look around you real quick, don't make any noise, but just look around you at the other people in this room. If you were to have shown up today, seeing these other people in this room as better than you and their interests as more important than your interests, this room would be the best place in the world. And I'm not exaggerating because if we can all put on this mindset of humility, We won't be elbowing each other when service lets out to get to the pool table. You guys laugh, but sometimes this is a problem. That some, you know, people who, and I gotta gotta be honest, when I was over in the high school ministry, you know, you guys aren't alone. They used to do it in the high school ministry with the ping pong table over there too, right? But instead of elbowing each other, get out of my way. I got to be the first to the pool table. I got to play my nine games today. I'm obviously being sarcastic. But instead of acting like that, maybe someone's standing around the pool table that they're, they're always standing there and they, they look like they want to play. And that person who maybe plays all the time would, would take the pool stick and be like, hey, do you want to play? You look like you want to play this game. And I play, I play all the time. How about you play this time? You're looking out for another person's interest. You're seeing someone as better than you. And God wants you to, to be like this as a Christian. The Bible says that Jesus did not come to be served, but to, but to serve. And we're to serve one another. This is the body of Christ. Though you guys are only in junior high, you are as much members of the body of Christ as any adult in this room is. And God's call to anyone who is a part of the body of Christ is to be humble and to see 
others as better than you. I genuinely would love to see what this place would look like if we put this verse in action. If we truly had lowliness of mind, it'd be the best place. He goes on to say gentleness. Gentleness, you guys, is meekness. The Bible describes Jesus as meek. And he says in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are the meek. The idea of meekness, you guys, is, or excuse me, the idea of gentleness is meekness. They're actually used interchangeably, much like how lowliness and humility are used interchangeably. Same thing with gentleness and meekness. And to be meek is to essentially not, not be weak towards one another, but to be gentle, to be gracious. It's to have a, a friendly disposition towards one another. To, to, like, to show up, like, it, back to the example of this youth group, this junior high ministry, to show up, get, this is gonna, another mind-blowing thing, to show up and be friendly at church. Wow, what a concept. But God wants you to be gentle towards one another, to be gracious and friendly. It says in Philippians 4, verse 5, to let your gentleness be known to all men. The next thing that Paul says in verse 2, you guys, is he says, with long suffering. Long suffering is another word that you and I might use for the word patience. All right? We use the word patience more often than we use the word long suffering, probably because it's less syllables to use the word patience. I'm joking. Uh, but no, we don't, we don't really say things like, oh, I'm being so long suffering towards my brothers and sisters, right? But you would say maybe, oh, I'm being patient. You know, I'm trying to be patient with my uh, four-year-old screaming brother who's having a temper tantrum right now, right? To be long-suffering is to show patience, to have forbearance and slowness in avenging wrongs. It's gracious tolerance. It's the opposite. You guys, you, you guys uh, 4th of July, like, did anyone light any fireworks? Like, you lit them yourself? Yeah, me too. Um, actually, did I? I'm trying to think. We went to another person's house. I don't know if I actually lit any fireworks. I usually do. Um, but anyway, you got, what's that thing that comes out of the firework that you actually light on fire? It's called the fuse, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? For us pyros who like to light fireworks, you know what I'm talking about? Right? And you light that fuse, and then what happens eventually? It starts, the fuse starts burning, and then kaboom, right? Big boom. Right? So long-suffering, what it means is essentially like you as a person have this really long fuse. That if someone does something to light your fuse, that it's going to take forever. They're going like, to have to continue to do things for you to actually go kaboom. Now, Lord willing, we never go kaboom. But, you know, we all, we all have a limit. And sometimes we reach our limits, but to be long-suffering is to have that really long fuse, to take a long time to go kaboom. But some people and some students in this room, I am sure, with your parents, with your siblings, with maybe even your friends at school and whatnot, your fuse is like this, like one little thing that they might say might just set you off and you just lose it. You go crazy, right? That is not what God wants for you. He wants you to have a long fuse. He wants you to be long-suffering because ultimately who is long-suffering towards us? 
God is. Yeah, God is long-suffering towards us, and because he is long-suffering towards us, we are to be long-suffering towards one another, to be patient. He says to bear with one another in love, to bear with one another. We could do a much better job of this. You see, what it is is, you know, remember back to that example I gave where if we're all thinking like humble people and we see each other as better than oneself, you know, and imagine everyone was wearing that mindset in this room. And then there's one guy, I'll just put myself in, in the example, who shows up who's just not having the best day, Right? So you guys are all wearing the mindset of humility, and then I show up, and let's say that my parents on the way into church were just having the most nasty argument, and because of that, I'm I'm really upset. Or maybe there's a situation going on in my life that you don't know about. Maybe my dog died yesterday, and because of that, you know, I'm sad. And because I'm sad, sometimes when we feel these emotions, we project them on other people, right? We don't mean to, but we sometimes do. And so imagine you guys are all wearing that humble mindset and I show up and I'm having a bad day, right? To bear with one another in love is for you guys to have grace with me, for you guys to be merciful that if I said something maybe towards you that you're like, oh, that was kind of mean. Like, why did he say that? It's to not retaliate and say something mean back, but to be gracious, to be merciful, just as God is gracious and merciful towards us. He moves on and says, Paul, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What he's saying here is to make every effort to be unified together. The word unity, you guys, it means oneness, oneness. And endeavoring, not a common word, but it means to exert oneself towards something. So to endeavor to keep unity. So we must see each other in this room as one. We are one body of Christ. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But because we are one, we seek to maintain that sense of oneness. We seek to maintain unity. Amos 3.3. Yes, the book of Amos is a book in the Bible. Not commonly read nor quoted in many sermons, but there's some good things in there. The book of Amos chapter 3 verse 3 says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Imagine that you and me, right? I call you up here and let's say we're going to do a three-legged race. All right, some of you did a three-legged race at camp in the relay race. But let's say I call one of you up here and I say, all right, we're going to do a three-legged race right now. You guys ready? And so I call that person up. We tie our legs together. And all we have to do is get to the finish line, which let's just say it's like right there at the wall, right? And so we're about to start the race. And I'm like, you know what? There's a finish line. But you want to get to the finish line? And I'm like, I'd rather go over here, actually. And so you're going that way and I'm going this way and our legs are tied together. We're not in agreement of where we're going. We're not walking together. We're not unified. But to walk in unity is to walk together, to be a team. The body of Christ is one. You see, the unity of the spirit, we learn, results in the bond of peace among the brethren. That word peace means harmony. Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all people. And in Romans 12, 18, 
It says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. See, if we are walking in unity in this place, then we will walk in peace. But we're talking a lot about unity. I've said that word a lot. Paul has said it in in the letter to the Ephesians right here, right? I guess he hasn't used the exact word. Yeah, he did in verse 3, excuse me. He says to keep the unity. We're talking all about unity. But I want to move on to talk to you guys about why unity matters. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. Why does unity matter? Because look at verses 4 through 6 and what it says. Don't write down, that is verses 4 through 6 on the screen. Don't write down all that verse, but just write down the reference. That in verses 4 through 6, Paul says, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Remember, the idea of unity is what? Is oneness. Right? What's that word that keeps coming up in the verses 4 through 6? I'll give you a, a, a hint. It's in all caps. <laughs> what is it? One. Right? The reason why unity matters is because God is all about oneness. He says one body. The one body that's being referred to, you guys, is the body of Christ. What's another word for the body of Christ? Anybody know? Starts with a C. The church. Not this building, the church, but the church as the assembly of believers in the world. Everyone who is a true believer in Christ Jesus is a part of the church, the one body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14, verse 20, verse 27, just jot down the reference. I'm not going to even read it right now just for the sake of time. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 20, 27, four, uh, 12 through 14, we see Paul telling the church at Corinth, which he's actually talking to them in this chapter about how to conduct themselves in the house of the Lord and spiritual gifts. And spoiler alert, next week, Pastor Joel is going to kind of talk to you guys about what spiritual gifts are. But today, what, I'm, what I want to tell you from these verses is that there is one body of Christ. Every single one of you, every one out of this 150, if that's the number or not, I don't know. But every single one of us who is a true believer is a member of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is one, and yet it has many members. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives the illustration of different body parts. There's one body, but there's a left hand, there's a right hand, there's a left foot, a right foot, a left kneecap, a right kneecap. There are these different members of the body, but how many bodies is there? There is one body, and there is one body of Christ. See, a lot of you guys playing on sports teams will probably understand this, right? You have one team, but let's take baseball, for example. There are nine different positions. You have guys who are playing different roles, but are they on separate teams? Are they on different teams? No, they're on the same team. They're working together in unity for a common goal. And that's what the body of Christ is like. He says, one spirit. We all have the same spirit of God in us. Every true child of God, everyone who is actually a Christian in this room today, you have the spirit of God himself inside of you. And it is because of that spirit 
that unity is possible. He says one hope. That one hope is the hope that we have in Christ. Kind of funny, Pastor Joel, I'm pretty sure, is actually teaching on that specific verse up in Idaho, probably like exactly right now. That's the verse that he's teaching on. At least that's what he told me before he left, right? But there is one living hope, and that one living hope is through Jesus. One Lord, he says, the one Lord is Jesus himself, the one true Lord. The word Lord means master, and Jesus is our Lord. That's why we say Lord Jesus, right? This is God the Son. One faith, he says, one, the, the one saving faith that is only in Jesus. There is no other way to heaven, only through him. And there is only one faith. One baptism, he says. Some, some Bible scholars think that Paul might be talking about water baptism. Some think that he's not talking about water baptism, but he's talking about being baptized into Christ Jesus. I tend to lean uh, more towards that, that this is referring not necessarily to water baptism so much, although water baptism is important. But I think he's talking about more of like what he says in Romans 6, 3 through 4, when he says, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. One baptism, he says. One God. This is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. What's that? When we say that God is three, yet he is one, what is that word that we use? The Trinity, the song we sang, King of Kings, uh, earlier, right? We say, uh, praise uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All throughout that song, we recognize the individual roles of the Trinity, and yet are we praising three different gods in doing that? No, we're praising the same God, the one true God. And he says, one, one Father, which is God the Father. And because you and I, we all have the same heavenly Father, what does that make us, essentially? Like spiritual what? Brothers and sisters, right? We see all throughout the New Testament, and even in like the book of Psalms, the word brethren and brothers and sister, right? You, you and me, because we have the same heavenly father who has adopted us, you are my brothers, you are my sisters in the Lord. And I, you know, I don't know what kind of home you come from, but you should treat your brothers and sisters in love and respect, and in the body of Christ, even more so. God desires that from you. He says, this one God who is above all, through all, and in you all. You see, unity matters to answer that question. Unity matters. Why, why does unity matter? Unity matters because God is all about oneness. In Psalm 133, verse 1, the psalmist says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And worship team, you guys can come on out as we close. You guys, I want to encourage you. You know, we've spent seven weeks prior to this week talking all about the wonder and amazement that is in the gospel, right? all about doctrine and what God has done for us. Don't let me lose you now. Don't start putting away your stuff. Just eyes up here. 
We've spent some time talking about all those things. And Paul's charge to you today is that you would walk worthy, that your life would match up to the gospel, that your life, that you would look like Jesus, not in the physical sense, right? You don't have to have a beard like Jesus had a beard to be like Jesus. If that were the case, I don't, my, my beard doesn't grow in very thick, so I'd be in trouble, right? But that's not the case. To be like Jesus, you walk like Jesus. You live like Jesus. Jesus was kind. You be kind. He was forgiving. You be forgiving. So on and so forth. We could keep going on and on about how Jesus lived. And Paul and God ultimately through his word, it's as though he looks at all of us today straight in the eyes. And he says, I want you to live worthy of the gospel. It's a, it's a mighty call, but it is amazing to live your life in response to that call that he has for you. And the way we do this is through things like lowliness, humility, gentleness, long-suffering. We talked about all of those. And finally, the kind of capstone to all of that is to walk in unity. As brothers and sisters who are on the same page, who are in agreement with one another because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, for obviously what you continue to do for us, but Lord, for what you did for us on that cross. Lord, we recognize that what you did is, is far beyond even, even words to say in thanks to, Lord. We, words don't do enough. But God, you, you want our hearts. You want us to be those living sacrifices unto you. It's the only reasonable service there is in light of how good you are and what you have done, Lord. You've called us to walk worthy. God, may we do so from this day on forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's